You know, we've been, we've been in the middle of this sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. And I want to just recap it before we get on to the end of it here this morning. Because the end of, this is a weird ending to the sermon, to the, to the sermon series. Because, I'll tell you why. Because what we're pointing toward with the end of the Lord's Prayer isn't even really in the Bible. Did you know that? We'll get to that in a second. Let's talk about the Lord's Prayer for a minute, okay? This is a prayer that Jesus gave to the people who were trying to understand how to relate to God and who God is. And it's, it's interesting to look at the way they prayed and then how Jesus corrects them. You see, because there were a lot of people, especially religious people, who liked to pray and make a real big deal out of how they pray. So they would stand up and they would use these big words and they would make a spectacle of themselves and draw a lot of attention to themselves in how they prayed. And Jesus looked at that and he said, don't be like those hypocrites. They love to pray standing in street corners or in the synagogues and they love to use big words that nobody else understands and they love to repeat empty phrases and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus says, don't be like that because indeed they've had their reward. You need to be different. Now, I don't know if anybody else can relate to that, but do you know anybody who likes to pray in King James English, but the rest of their life they speak normal English? You know, it's like, hey, how you doing? Let's pray. Oh, Lordest thou God, you know, thy hast beseeched us with great mercies. You know, and sometimes you wonder, why do we feel like we have to go into this different mode of talking when it comes to prayer? And I think sometimes it's because we believe subconsciously that God likes it when we're more formal or when we use bigger words or whatever. And Jesus says, look, the truth is this. None of that matters. What God cares about is what's going on in your heart. And to avoid temptation of, of trying to make your prayer about being noticed by other people, because that happens, right? He said, go into your room and pray. Pray by yourself. Pray in secret. And your heavenly Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And I think that, that that can be true for those of us today. I mean, have you ever been in a prayer circle? And and it's your turn's coming up. And like the person two people down from you is like this amazing prayer. And they're so eloquent. And they use all these big words. And they take all your stuff that you were going to pray for. And you're just like, oh man, I'm going to seem like a fool. You know? That's what Jesus is talking about. He says, look, prayer is never focused on us. It's always focused about God. So when you pray, pray like this. And then he gives us the Lord's Prayer. It's a way to relate to God. He says, first and foremost, you need to understand to whom you're praying to. You're you're, you're praying to God, who is your Father, who is in heaven. And that's important. He's saying, that's how you relate to God. You relate to God as a Father, but not just any Father, as a loving, as a divine, all-powerful Father, who is in heaven. And you're to, to worship Him and give Him glory. Hallowed be your name. And then before you even ask God for anything for yourself you need to first submit your will to God. Give us this day our daily bread, right? It's about asking God for what we need, but that only comes after we first say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Don't come to God with your requests and your agenda and your will and expect that God's going to change his plan for your plan. That's not how it works. Jesus says, you must first bring your will underneath God's will, and then watch what happens. It's amazing. He'll give you what you need. He'll give you what you need just for the day. He doesn't ask that you come before him with your giant-sized list of all the requests that you want, with everything. He says, just ask for what you need for the day. 
Because God will provide that to you. And one of the things that you need for the day is this. Forgive us our trespasses, right? We need to be forgiven. We need to be forgiven every day. Because that's central to the message of the gospel is a message that we need to repent. That we need to to ask God to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because you know why? We're sinners. And the message of the gospel, first and foremost, is that we need a Savior. And Jesus has come to save us. But the message that he preached was repent and believe the gospel. We can't believe this this idea that, that we can come to Jesus and that he will never change us. The fact is this. God loves us all just the way we are, but he loves us enough to help us change and to turn us into holy people that are righteous, not because of anything that we do, but because of what he does and what he has done. And then that forgiveness then must flow from us, through us, to others. Because we can't be people of forgiveness if we don't also forgive. We can't expect God to give us mercy if we, in turn, are willing to give no mercy. Jesus, in fact, goes on to say... If you do not forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive you yours. Serious business. And then he says, in order that you might do that, pray that God would lead you not into temptation, but deliver you from evil. Because the reason why it's in the prayer is because Jesus knows that we can't do that ourselves. We can't deliver ourselves from evil. We can't lead ourselves away from temptation because inherently to our sinful nature is to run into temptation. We don't struggle to find temptation. We struggle to avoid it, typically. And we need God's help. And that's why we have this prayer. Well then, at the end of this prayer, as we say in our churches, how many of you have been to a Catholic church and you pray this prayer and we don't do the whole for thine is the kingdom power and glory forever, amen. say, well, where's that? How many of you noticed when we, when we read the scripture over, over the last few weeks, when you got to this part of the text, you go, hey, that's not in there, right? What's up with that? Who took it out of the Bible, right? Well, the answer is, is this. It was never in the Bible in the first place. Did you know that? It's not part of Jesus' original prayer. It's what we refer to as a doxology. Now, some scriptures will, will, will have that with a little footnote on the end of it. And the truth is, there are, there are many texts... I should, maybe several texts, I should say, in the New Testament especially, that have little footnotes on the end of them or at your end of your Bible. John chapter 8 is, is an example. The first story of the woman caught in adultery. If you read down, you'll see a little note in your Bible that says some manuscripts omit this section. And, and so what we do now with modern translations is rather than take them out, we'll usually have a note or a, or a description about what's going on. Well, well this doxology was, was used as part of the prayer starting as early as the first century by the original apostles. Did you know that? So it became part of the tradition of the church that when you prayed this prayer, that this line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, were were put on the end of it as a way of response to Jesus' words of prayer. It's as if it's us saying, yeah, I agree with that. So what's it all about? Well, first and foremost, it starts off with the words, for thine. And I think that right there is, is, is pretty important to think about that. Because it all belongs to God. It's all speaking about God. And everything and all things belong to God. Especially us. And despite what this culture would tell us, and what the bumper sticker says, God is not your co-pilot. You are not God's partner. God is not in consultation with you about your life. He doesn't need you to plan anything. He needs you, rather, to follow. You see, there's some things in life that require partners 
And there are some things in life that require one person to be in charge and the other person to be a helper. And that's kind of what it's like with God. I was reminded of this. Yesterday was Estelle and I's 17th anniversary. 17 years she's been married to me. Can you believe that? And we were married when we were 11. So, and, and, and what's interesting is I remember one of the things that our, our premarital wedding counselor, and I would advise anybody who's about to be married, go to, start going to counseling before you get married. It's incredibly helpful, right? So our pre-marriage counselor, I remember one of the things he said to us was this, and another thing, don't ever try to wallpaper together until you've been married at least 10 years. And I thought to myself, why would I ever wallpaper? It's ugly and tacky. It's like my mom's house, right? You know, well, but uh, no offense to people that love wallpaper. But he says, well, that's because you can't ever wallpaper with two people that think they're both in charge. One is clearly the one who's in charge and one is clearly the helper, right? And if, if you ever try to wallpaper with somebody, you know what I'm talking about. Or if you've ever tried to work on some sort of project involving tools and wood and measurements together, it's also equally valid. You know what it's like, fellas. You're working on something and you just need somebody to hand you the tools, not give you comments and weigh in on everything that you're doing, right? Well, that's crooked. You're not going to do it that way, are you? You know, did you check the manual? Maybe there's a video on YouTube that would show you how to do that the right way. Or sometimes just a little like, oh, you know, you know how it is. Some things just require one person to be in charge. It's the, it's the reason why the handlebars on the backside of tandem bicycles don't also control the front tire, right? Sometimes you just got to go along for the ride. For thine is the kingdom, right? For thine, it belongs to God. It's all about God. Let's talk about this kingdom for a moment here. See, the kingdom of God is something that Jesus talks a lot about. But the word kingdom can kind of be unclear to us because we don't typically recognize that we live under a kingdom. We don't have a king. We have a president, right? And some people can get excited about a baby being born across the ocean that someday he's going to be a great king. But the fact is this. He could be a king, but he's not really going to rule over anybody. Those days in our Western uh, modern society are, are a thing of the past. But for the Jews, it was very real. The king was a very important person, and there were many kingdoms. And one of the jobs of the king, supposedly, was to provide for, to protect, to teach, and to love his subjects. That was what the king was supposed to do. And if you had a great king, your kingdom was usually pretty awesome. But if you had a lousy king, man, your kingdom was a mess. Now, the Israelites, the, the people of God, when God gave them his, his commands, he didn't give them a king initially because... He wanted to be their king. But you know what they said? Well, the other nations, they all have a king. Why can't we have one? So God relented and said, okay, fine. You want an earthly king? I'll give you one. We'll see how it goes. All you have to do is read the Old Testament, and you'll see how that goes. Read the book of Chronicles. Read the book of Judges. You see one sinful king after another who continued to take the people farther and farther away from God. So Jesus now comes and says, look, let me tell you about what the kingdom is really like and who your king really is. And his name is Jesus. He is our king, and we live under his authority. There is one kingdom, the kingdom for which Christians must live under, and the king is God, our Father. And his kingdom is the kingdom that we seek, and we seek no other. And we need to know to which kingdom we belong, because each kingdom has different rules. 
and, and most importantly, different kings. And Jesus told the people, look, the things that you seek from your king, you need to seek from God, from his kingdom. And that's why in chapter 6, verse 33, he says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. All the things that you worry about that you need from your king, your provision, your protection, your teaching, your guidance, your love, all of those things, your king, God the Father, will provide to you, provided that you seek his kingdom first. You see, here's the problem. You can't live in multiple kingdoms. But you and I, although we're not familiar with the kingdom mindset, we do live like that. We live in the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of our school, or the kingdoms of our career, or the kingdoms of our family, or the kingdoms of our society about what that we're supposed to do and, and, and the way the world works. There are many kingdoms that vie for subjects. And there are many kingdoms that promise that you will be provided and taken care of, provided you pay your tribute to the king. But those kingdoms, other than the kingdom, will leave you lacking. You can't live in two kingdoms, and you certainly can't have two kings. You must first seek the kingdom of God. For thine is the kingdom and the power. The power belongs to God. And Jesus wants us to pray this prayer so we can acknowledge God's power and submit to it. God has power. I know that seems like it should go without saying, but how many of us in our prayers pray to anything but a powerful God? Oh God, it's a mess. Oh God, it'll never get any better. Oh God, my life is a disaster and I'll never break free from this this sin or this attitude or this addiction or this bitterness or this mindset that I have of, of, of whatever the world might be. And, and, oh God, there's nothing that can be done for me. Just, Lord, help me hang on, Jesus. Um, I'm not going to pray for this person anymore, God, because clearly it doesn't work. I'm not going to ask you for big things in my life. I'm not going to trust you because, God, I, I, I don't believe that you really have power. Let me tell you something. God has power. You and I are here for the reason of God's power. Look at what it says in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 12. It is he who made the earth by his power, who establishes the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Our God is powerful. We do not serve a weak God. So don't treat God that way. In your prayers, acknowledge his power. That leads to more faith. And then from 1 Chronicles 29, 11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. It's all about God. And He has the power. He has the power to deliver you. And He has the power to judge you. He has the power to forgive you and receive you. And He has the power to condemn you. I know we don't like to think about that. We don't like to think about God's power and God's wrath and whatever. But, but the Bible says clearly that he has that power. Jesus says, fear not the one who has the power to destroy your earthly body. Fear instead the one who has power to destroy both your body and soul in hell. He's not talking about the devil. He's talking about God. God has power. You need to hear that and be encouraged when you feel hopeless and desperate. And you also need to hear it and be con convicted when you have arrogance and pride and think it's about you 
when we foolishly believe that we can go our sinful ways and, and live in, in, in rebellion toward God and that there's no consequence to that or no penalty for that because God can't do anything about it, we err greatly. God has the power. But here's the great thing about our God. He wants to use His power to support you, to build you up, to provide for you, to take care of you, to love you. So let God's power be at your back, not straining against it. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. The point of life is to glorify God. The point of the universe is to glorify God. The point of our singing is to glorify God. The point of of our bodies are to glorify God. The point of your marriage is to glorify God. The point of your singleness is to glorify God. The point of your job is to glorify God. The point of everything that is made is to glorify God. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. You might think that carved idols are a thing of the past, but I tell you not. I tell you that they are just as relevant today. Only instead of carving idols from wood, we carve them from metal and plastic. We carve them in the form of computers. We carve them in the form of, of, of money. We carve them in the form of, of accomplishments. We carve them in the form of, of a house or of a car or of anything that would set itself before God and demand its glory from us rather than before God. And because we were created for God's glory, we have that innate desire and, and proclivity toward worshiping. The problem is because we're sinners, we take that glory and we apply it everywhere else we can other than where it belongs. Think of the glory we give to others in this world. We glorify athletes. We glorify musicians. We glorify celebrities. We glorify people who are really smart. We glorify people who are really talented. We glorify people for how they look. We glorify just about anybody. Go to the grocery store and stand in line and try not to look at those stupid magazines that are all about glorifying people for doing terrible things, typically. Who cares where Paris Hilton bought her bag? But that has to be on the cover of a magazine. Who cares how many wives or husbands Kim Kardashian has. Who cares? I don't care. But this culture cares. Why? Because we just want to glorify someone so badly. We want our idols to serve us. We want them to love us. So we, we pour praise upon them and praise upon them. And what do they bring us back? Nothing. I don't know how many of you saw that video that, that Ashton Kutcher put out this week. It, was, it went viral. He's a celebrity who, who received some award and he's a big star in Hollywood. And, and I saw this video last week, and it just came to my mind, so I'll tell you. And he basically stood up, and he, you know, he's this big celebrity guy. And he basically told all these teenagers at the Teen Choice Awards that everything that they see coming out of Hollywood and this whole image thing, it's all a big lie. And he said, don't buy it. He said, everything that you see from all of this, it's not real. It's not sexy. It's not what you should worry about. And I thought, wow, maybe some people are starting to wake up. Where does that all come from? Because we want to glorify, glorify, glorify. God says, I do not share my glory with anyone. How much trouble would be spared in life if we realized that the chief purpose of life was to glorify God? 
Now, some of us are seeking our own glory, aren't we? Some of us make decisions about what we do and where we go and what we buy and how we look based on trying to impress others and get glory for ourselves. Some of us are going to choose different schools or, or different activities or, or different hobbies or whatever or, or, or different friends based on the amount of glory we will receive. Well, if I'm friends with these people, they're not as popular, so that won't give me enough glory. So I have to, to turn my back on them and, and, and go with these people because that will give me more glory. Well, I, I may be really good at this particular thing, but, but that's not cool in my school, so I'm not going to do that even though I really want to. I'm going to instead do this because I don't want people to think I'm a dork. So I'll go over here and do this to get more glory. How much of our life is spent on trying to figure out how to get glory or put it in the wrong place? God says, I share my glory with no one. Bring it to me. For that is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Forever. Jesus wants you to pray that prayer recognizing that the things of this world and these kingdoms on this world are temporary. And the things of the kingdom of heaven are are everlasting. And Jesus wants you to, to be reminded that as you invest your life and as you invest yourself in the things of this world, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to all turn to vapor someday and, and be smashed. But the kingdom of, of, of God and God's kingdom will last forever. He says in Daniel 2, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. The things of this earth are temporary. The things that you failed at in this world are temporary. Did you know that? All of your mistakes, all your failures, that's temporary. But guess what? So are all your successes. So are all your accomplishments. All of those things are temporary as well. The status, the possessions, and everything that we think is so important, unless it is part of the kingdom of God, it is temporary. And it blows my mind time and time again how this is a lesson we have to keep on learning. And it's so difficult. Because it's so easy to get locked into this mindset that what we see around us and where we are right now is everything. I tell you what, I get to work with students and there's no group of people more blind to this than, than junior high and high school students. Am I right? And I love them. But they're crazy. Because they believe this idea. Think about it. They believe this idea that what happens between the ages of, let's say, 12 and 18 is, is all that there is in this world. Now, you know who doesn't understand? Now, you know who, who's, who's, who's fixed by that? Go find a 20-year-old and talk to him. Go find someone who's, who's out of that for a couple years and say, hey, how's, how, how's it going with, with all the status and popularity and being cool? Who cares anymore, right? The answer is nobody. Now, we all do that in different ways in our own self, but, but the fact is this. When we sell out to the temporary things of this world at the expense of the permanent things of the kingdom of God, we err greatly. And it never ceases to amaze me how, how even people who, who love Jesus can get, can get seduced by this mentality. The mentality that says, well, I have to invest in, in, in what's going to get me somewhere here. Even if it costs me my spiritual life. 
my spiritual health. So every year we see the same thing. We see kids who are fired up about God. Maybe they come back from camp or whatever, this or that, and they come in or whatever, and they want to grow in their faith, this and that, but then you know what happens? They get this pressure, and it's the pressure to do the world's kingdom or God's kingdom. And you know what breaks my heart? Is when good, godly Christian parents take their kids away from the kingdom of God and throw them into the kingdom of the world and say, well, it's important that they play sports on Sunday morning for nine months out of the year. Sorry, they can't come to church. They're involved in this, 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 and this, and this, and this. And I'm telling you what right now, you can choose to do that all you want. I'm not here to judge you. You judge you. I'm not here to tell you what your kids should or shouldn't do. You figure it out. But let me tell you something right now, moms and dads and grandparents and whoever. If you teach your kids right now that playing ball is more important than worshiping God, then expect them to walk away from their faith in their church as soon as they graduate. It happens every time, just about. And you may not like hearing that from me, but let me tell you something. I've seen it for 20 years. I remember having a conversation with a, with a woman who come in to see me and whose 17-year-old daughter who was sort of raised in the church until she made the, the best team was going wayward in a big, bad way. And her mom came to see me and said, I don't know what to do. I don't know how this could have happened. We, we, you know, she grew up in Sunday school and this and that. And, I'm like, and, and she's like, but now she has no faith at all. And I'm like, well, it's easy for me to see that. Because you took her out of here for six months out of the year so she could go play on the best team every Sunday, every Wednesday, gone, gone, gone. And it was just like she had no choice in the matter. Well, I'm sorry. That's when the games are. Do you have to play? What? Should I sacrifice my spot on the kingdom of the team? I know you might think I'm being ridiculous, and I'm sure I'll get emails, but you know what? This is what the Lord has to say for us today. And I, you know what? i tell you something. I'm right there with you. i got three kids. Two of them are in high school this year. And you want to know something? This is a conversation we have in my house too. And it's not easy. It's tough. Because the pressures that, that everything else in this world is putting on you to be involved in every single thing and do everything and, and, and whatever, it's ridiculous. And unless you sell your soul out to do these things, it's almost like you don't get to be in anything. So you have to make a choice. Which kingdom will you live in? The one that lasts forever or the one that fades away the minute you walk across the stage and are handed a diploma? Now, here's the thing. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying your kids can't be in sports or activities or anything like that. I am not saying mine are. That is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that any of those stuff is bad or wrong or evil or whatever. It was an important part of my life growing up, too. But I am saying this, the minute that you take that stuff and put it up in front of God as being more important or more worthy of your time or devotion is the minute that you've carved a little idol up, put it on the mantle of your house and said, hey gang, let's bow down to this. And God says, I will not share my glory with others. And it starts with us, parents. We have to model that. We have to say, this is my house. And in my house, this is how it goes. We worship the Lord. And how you work that out with what your kids do and this and that, that's between you and God. I'm just telling you this. The kingdom of this world is temporary. Very temporary. The kingdom of heaven lasts forever. Don't store up for yourselves treasures that will fade away. 
Don't sacrifice your faith in God for a trophy that's going to be in a box someday. The kingdom of the Lord is forever. It shall stand forever. The question is, will we stand with it? And here's the good news about God's kingdom. There's always room for more inside it. Did you know that? There's a place for you in God's kingdom. His arms are wide open, ready to receive any who would come to him and say, I want to be in your kingdom, Jesus. I want to follow you. And his promises for you are there that he promises to provide what you need. He promises to save you. He promises to forgive you. He promises to love you. He promises to never leave your side. But you have to declare your allegiance to him. When you pray this prayer, you have to tag on that line at the end in your heart and mean it. Because you can pray it all day long. You can even pray it in the original Greek or whatever it was written in. Doesn't mean a thing. If in your heart you're not proclaiming, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Not just until I get tired of it. Not just until, you know, somebody comes along with a better offer. Not just until the kid down the street does something. Forever! So this morning you've prayed this thing a thousand times. You're going to pray it one more time. And I'm going to invite you right now, maybe for the first time, to really, with all of your heart, take a stand and let this prayer resonate the way Jesus wanted it to resonate in your heart. And when we get to the end and we proclaim this doxology, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, may that be true in your heart. May it be something that overpowers you And may you mean it like you've never meant it before. If you do that today, I invite you to join me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.